Hello and welcome to Alchemy Radio, the home of the open mind. Thank you for tuning in. Hopefully you're enjoying the show as we bring you a variety of eye and ear opening guests every two weeks. We're increasing the output of the show. We're about to go weekly. So uh, as you've noticed, if you're a regular listener over the last few weeks, we've had extra shows in where normally we would have a one week break. And we're continuing to do so. Of course, we're dependent on your donations and anything that you can donate to help support our bandwidth costs is greatly appreciated. The show is currently free and advertising free, as you know, and it's non-profit as well. So we're, we're very grateful, as I said, for any help that you can offer at all. And thank you indeed to everybody who has donated to date. Check out our new Twitter account, twitter.com forward slash Alchemy Radio, and of course our Facebook page. So get following and interacting with us with all your feedback, guest suggestions and other input. So on to the show. Today's guest is James Corbett, who edits, webmasters, writes and produces the extremely popular Corbett Report website. James has been living and working in Japan since 2004. He started the Corbett Report in 2007 and has written, recorded and edited over 1,000 hours of audio and video media for the website, including a weekly podcast and several regular online video series. He produces video reports for GRTV, the video production arm of the Centre for Research on Globalisation, and BoilingFrogsPost.com, the website of noted FBI whistleblower Sibel Edmonds. He is also an editorial writer for the International Forecaster, the weekly e-newsletter created by the recently deceased economic analyst Bob Chapman. James, you're very welcome to Alchemy Radio. How are things? I'm doing very well. Thank you so much for having me on. Well, it's a great pleasure to have you on. Myself and all the Alchemy Radio crew have been big followers of your work, and some of the stuff you've done has been truly magnificent and really eye-opening for us over the last number of years. So before we delve into some of that knowledge, tell us a little bit about how you got into this field and how you rejected a lot of the mainstream in favour of the Corbett Report. Well, do you want the short version or the long version? Well, we've all the time in the world, so I'll, I'll allow you to decide <laughs> well, that. Let's start with the short version, and you can ask me for details on, on any parts that you need uh, uh, more information on. Great. Uh, I mean, the, the, the short version of this story is that I, it was about 2006, and I was here in Japan, where I'm, for the audience who doesn't know, I'm a Canadian citizen. I live in Japan. I've been living here since 2004. I originally came out here just to teach English for a year and see a bit of Asia, and uh, one year turned into two years, turned into three years, turned into nine going on 10 years so uh and now i have a japanese wife and child so it looks like uh, this might be my home and at any rate um so it was 2006 i'd been living in japan a couple of years and i for the first time was moving into my own apartment after having shared with some some flatmates i suppose you would say in ireland for a while and um and so i was moving into my own apartment and it came with an internet connection and this was the first time in years that i'd had an internet connection in my home generally i'd had to go to internet cafes to check emails or whatever up until that point so so it was quite a breakthrough for me, and um, especially so because during the time that I hadn't had the internet, some some new kind of file sharing and video sharing sites had come along like YouTube and Google Video, and suddenly I was able to watch 
all these feature length documentaries on all sorts of different subjects. And uh, that was, I mean, that was so revolutionary for me because I, I think it was what I'd always wanted and always thought, why didn't this exist? I mean, back in the, uh, the old days of the, the television paradigm, as I'm sure some of your listeners might be able to remember, um, <laughs> basically we were all just uh, subject to whatever was, uh, whatever the programmers of the television station wanted us to see. And suddenly I, I was able to follow my own interests and follow that around the web and, and research uh, basically uh, anything I was interested in. And I was, I've always been interested in politics and, and things of that nature and, and considered myself well-informed on these types of issues. So, of course, I started uh, looking at the, those types of uh, documentaries and things along those lines. And it wasn't long before in the related section of the YouTube videos, I started seeing these links to these 9-11 tr- truth-related videos. And at the time, I was very much adverse to the idea of 9-11 truth. I thought it was a ridiculous conspiracy theory and how people make conspiracies out of anything and why would they why would they talk about this and it's disrespectful and all of the type of things that I'm sure everyone who listens to this program has probably heard from others if uh, if if they haven't said it themselves and uh, and but it kept coming up in the related sections and I, I every time now and then I click on some of the videos and just through that process I came across ridiculous videos that made silly claims that uh, that I immediately was able to dismiss but then I came across other videos that made interesting claims that I hadn't heard before and when I uh, went to look up some of the information I found it was actually true so I started finding out more about Osama bin Laden and what the Al-Qaeda network really was and how it came to be and things of that nature and the more I started to involve myself in that process and start to try to challenge some of the claims that I was seeing in these videos the more obviously I became involved in in going down that rabbit hole that again I'm sure a lot of your audience can probably relate to. And so it was through that process that I eventually came out, I guess, the other side to where I am today. And um, and, and basically, it was a, a process of going through 9-11 truth and then finding out about central banking and what's really behind the money supply and, and all of that. And I think that was when the penny really dropped for me and I realized what was going on. And that's also when I realized the scope of the lies that I'd been exposed to for basically my entire life. I mean, again, I considered myself a fairly well-informed person, but there was all this information I was encountering that I had never, ever been exposed to in all my many years of schooling and uh, and, and uh, serious deep thought and contemplation of these important issues. I'd never been exposed to this type of information. So it really did throw me for a loop at first. And it was I think it was just the uh, the extent of the, the discrepancy between this information I was encountering versus what I'd been taught my whole life um, was just so jarring that I, I figured there had to be some way for me to, to, I guess, help spread this information to others because it had such a profound effect on me. And I knew that... That, uh, that it was just people like myself just putting this online that helped me to come to that process of realization myself. So I wanted to be part of that. And lo and behold, I started up the Corporate Report website um, just as, as a podcast. That was just the original idea. I was just going to do a, a podcast. And I never in a million, million, million years would I have ever expected it would have become what it did. But I guess that's the, the lesson that I like to try to spread to others is you never, ever know what, uh, what's going to come of your endeavors. Or if you, uh, if you plant the seeds today, what's going to flower, you know, 5, 10, 20 years from now, you have no idea how this is going to ripple out. So I think it's, uh, it's important and incumbent for all of us who do have information that, that is important in, in, in breaking down some of the walls and barriers that have been erected around our minds our entire lives to 
to use this brief window of opportunity of the internet to really to really affect that. So that's what I'm trying to do. That's what I've been doing for the last uh, six, going on seven years now at the Corbett Report, and hopefully we'll continue to do um, as long as it takes. And uh, and I don't see an end to a, a lot of the lies or deceptions coming anytime soon, unfortunately. I don't think so, but I must say one of, um, to my mind anyway, one of the big secrets to your success, I think the way that you interpret the news and the way that you present it then, repackage and present it to people in such, um, I suppose, a non-conspiratorial manner, if you get my drift. While you may be speaking about conspiracies a lot of the time, it's presented in such a way that people are familiar with, a format and a style that people who mightn't have had their own paradigms shattered Um, at a particular stage are open to and I think that's one of the big attractions and that's certainly when I first became aware of the Corbett Report I remember sitting down with one of my mates and watching a couple of videos and thinking hang on a minute this guy gets it and not only does he get it he knows how to present it to people who haven't been exposed to this information before because I know for a lot of people if they're presented with paradigm shattering news they can kind of curl up in a ball so to speak and they can resist 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 but the way, the way things are presented on the Corbett Report that's really attractive to me and I think certainly is to a lot of other people is that it can spark a kernel for people. They can walk away from a report and they can kind of maybe come back to it and think, do you know what, there was something in there. Even though that news seems so far out to me, there was something in there that I can relate to. Let's go back to it. And that's one of the things I found myself going back and back to your information. Have you got that kind of feedback from others at any stage? Well, I, I thank you for that feedback. It's always good to hear how people respond to the work and why why they are attracted to it. And and I think it's different for everyone. And I have heard similar stories from people before. I mean, there's a lot of different people who listen, I'm sure, for different reasons. But um, I, I can't really say that any of this has been uh, any sort of conscious effort on my part. It really is just an organic offshoot of the work that I do and the person that I am. And I'm just the type of person that... I, I would rather, I mean, if someone's going to be presenting me with some some startling ideas and facts and claims, I would really like to see the sources and see the documentation and see where they're getting this from. And that was always the driving motivation behind what I was doing. In fact, from the very, very, very beginning, um, even before I started the website, as soon as I had the idea of doing a podcast, one of the very first things that, I, that came to me was that it was going to have every single time I mentioned a, an article or whatever, it was going to be documented and I'd, I'd have a link to it so that people People could find it very easily. And that's always been a co- core part of what I'm doing because I don't see myself really as someone who's out there trying to convince anybody of anything. I'm not sitting there saying, oh, please believe me. I'm saying these are the facts that I have. These are the sources that I use to get those facts. These are the ways that I'm interpreting those facts. This is the way I see it. And if people see it the similar way, great. If they see it a different way, well, certainly that's that's up to their prerogative. All The only thing that I really ask of my audience is that they, they don't um, take my word for it. They don't just believe that they do look at the sources and consider things for themselves. And if the audience is doing that, I consider what I'm doing successful, whether they believe what I'm saying or not. So so I, th- I think I approach it from maybe a slightly different perspective than a lot of people out there seem to uh, uh, at least think that a lot of broadcasters approach their, their work. Uh, again, I'm not trying to uh, form a cult. I'm not trying to make people believe what I believe. I'm just putting out facts and uh, people can take them for what they're worth. Absolutely. I couldn't agree more. And I certainly commend that personally. So keep up the good work in that regard. 
So let's talk about 9-11 for a second, James, because you mentioned it. You mentioned that it was kind of the big one for you as it was for a lot of people with regard to opening your mind and your eyes to what was really going on. And I think it coincided with the, the boom on the Internet. I mean, the timing of 9-11 couldn't have been worse for any perceived control system, in my opinion, because of the way the Internet was really taking hold and becoming a, a daily fixture in people's lives. So... What was it about 9-11? What was the smoking gun for you? I mean, a lot of people will be familiar with your 9-11 a Conspiracy Theory video, which has done so well and it has opened up your work to a lot of people. But was there a particular smoking gun or was it kind of a drip feed process with regard to 9-11? I don't think there was a, sm a single smoking gun. Um, I, I guess it was more just accumulation of facts. Um, but there were, there were steps and stages in that process. I mean, I remember uh, after... I believe it was 9-11 uh, Mysteries, which was a, a, a documentary. It was, I, I think it was going to be a documentary series, but I believe there was only one that was ever made, and it was about the, the uh, destruction of the towers. And I remember watching that, and then after that point, I, I remember actually sitting there at work one day. I, I was doing some, some mindless paperwork, and my mind was drifting, and I, I was sort of picturing in my head the way those buildings collapsed. And, and I started to realize that I, I, could, I couldn't imagine how i ever believed that they simply collapsed before uh, when you look at it from the perspective of well there was something definitely very different going on there you start to see the way it was basically pulverizing and being torn apart in midair and uh, and you can't unsee that once you've seen it and i it really struck me how I, for all those years i'd just been seeing it and just I, I heard the word collapse and so that's what i saw but then once i started to consider it in that different light i i couldn't believe that i ever saw it that way so that was one of the things that that struck me in the early part of the, the, the research. But for, for my, myself, I think I've always been more interested in, and drawn to some of the, the, the geopolitical ties and connections, the ideas of uh, the uh, Osama bin Laden and the Al-Qaeda network, what it is, um, how it was founded, um, the ways that it was um, being, uh, uh, being pursued by certain parts of the intelligence community and then covered up by other parts so that their actions could, could uh, continue and, and uh, some of the sh spy games and shadows shadow games uh, i think certainly the um the actual war games that were taking place on that day that was another huge piece of the puzzle for me and then um something that i've always been particularly fascinated by is the kind of financial aspects of 9-11 because i really do think that on on one level i mean i don't think it was just an event that that was just one thing and done for one purpose by one group. I think like any of these spectacular events, there were a number of different um, ideas and, and players and agendas that, that converge at this point. And it worked out for a lot of people in a lot of different ways. So I don't ever try to pin it down to just one thing and, you know, Cheney with a plunger, you know, in order to invade Afghanistan. I think there was a lot of different things that were going on. But one of them definitely was the plundering of, um, well, billions and and I guess in the long run, trillions of dollars from the from the economic system through through what took place on 9/11 directly, and then through its aftermath. And uh, and it's interesting to me to to see all of the different threads of the different financial aspects of what was happening on 9/11 itself. When you look at all of the financial um, firms that had their headquarters in World Trade Center, and then you start to find out about, the, for example, the recovered hard drives that uh, there was a German uh, firm that was working on um, actually recovering those hard drives, recovering the data from them, and and they started to uncover the fact that there was, um, uh, I believe it was tens or perhaps hundreds of millions of dollars in um, anomalous transactions that they were able to trace from those 
recovered hard drives before the point that their investigation seems to have been shut down and nothing was heard from it ever again. They had only, I think, looked at something like 25 or 30 percent of the, the recovered hard drives at that point. So there was still a lot of data left to, to go through. But we never heard anything about that investigation after those initial findings were reported, I believe, in uh, 2002, maybe 2003, that that was that report made its way out. And so um, so th- I, that's just one of the many, many aspects of the financial um, side of 9-11. But, uh, but those are the types of things. And it was just a confluence of all of these different facts that, again, the more I tried to challenge them and look into them, the more I found that there was something to them. And that, that, that was disturbing, obviously, but it was very... Um, I guess it was the process of me investing myself in that research and, and putting sort of my time and energy into the research that that got me to the point where I am today, which is why I think that you're exactly right um, in terms of 9-11 happening right there is sort of at the the rise of the internet in popular culture it is a, a fascinating period of time because i think the internet enables a different way for people to relate to information to access information to understand and process information than has really ever existed in human history i, I mean i really I, I i tend to stress that a lot in my work and i i don't want to to people to just dismiss that as as people saying oh he's just temporocentric he only thinks you know his own time is the most important time but i really do think there's something fundamentally different happening with this internet revolution i mean i really think there is the potential for a revolution in consciousness in a meaningful way that's happening right now because people are able to not just access information in kind of a passive way but to actively insert themselves in that process and i think there's a different a different outcome that comes from us actively being a part of that uh, that engagement. And I hope that it doesn't all get shunted off into kind of diversionary um, uh, avenues. I hope that the internet doesn't just basically become Facebook, YouTube, Twitter, Google, so that everybody goes to these few sites where all of the information is controlled and you have to sign up for a user account that can be censored and blocked at any time for any reason, etc., etc. I mean, I hope we can avoid that fate for the internet, because I really do think that the uh, there there is a potential for a true change um, that's happening right now. And, and uh, th- my process of coming to understand, for example, 9-11 was just one small piece of that uh, that much bigger puzzle. I think so, and I think it's very interesting what you say about the internet, almost like um, an alternative hive mind, and if it, uh, provided it's not allowed to be controlled in the way that we fear, or the way that you've just mentioned, it, it's almost like, having spoken to a lot of alternative historians over the last couple of years, a lot of people will talk about um, ancient indigenous cultures around the world and lost civilizations and how they appear to have had some method of communication um, that, that went beyond technology that was lost at some point in human history. And for me, while I don't know a huge amount about that side of things, the internet, when I, when, when I hear people speak about the internet such as the way you just have, it reminds me of that kind of a, almost like a remembering of a lost consciousness or a lost technology for want of a far better word and that we can suddenly access this cache of information that's held for everybody at any stage around the world and it just it breaks down massive massive borders which can be a very dangerous thing as any kind of technology can but I think an overridingly positive thing because of the way that it just gives people access to different opinions to 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 allow them to form their own opinions for the first time in many many years because you spoke earlier on about the uh, the old television situation whereby people would pick up a newspaper read a tele um, look at the television 
And that's the only access they had to information bar the few books that they might be able to access in a library. And they had this very small, narrow bandwidth of information that has just exploded with an uncontrolled and an uncensored internet. So yes, I, I, I hope also that, uh, that things don't, don't go down the censored route because I think that would be an absolute disaster for the expanding human consciousness that, that I think is developing and developing a lot more quickly over time. And there's a snowball effect with regard to it as the internet takes a grip and a hold as it has over the last decade or two decades. So you also mentioned money, James, and following the money trail with regard to 9-11. And it goes far, far further and deeper than that as well. I mean, we're looking at a global... Uh, a mirrored economy all over the place with the economic crashes of 2008 and 2009 and the way there seems to be a huge transference of wealth from the many to the few that appears to be unprecedented in Roman history. There was something similar with, with the Romans way back when. But wh what's your take on the global economy and the way things have gone over the last, I, I suppose, since 9-11? And what way are things headed in the future, in your opinion? Well, I think 9-11 certainly did provide a kind of inflection point in the economy. And it's interesting, obviously, right at the uh, the point of the popping of the, the dot-com bubble, um, we had the, 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 the second strike, I guess, on the economy was 9-11. Uh, and obviously, everyone was thinking, well, what, what, what on earth does this mean? I mean, it hit, again, right at the heart of the financial center at Wall Street and, and uh, World Trade Center. I mean, obviously, it was, it was symbolically important. It was economically important. It was a huge hit. So, how how on earth will the United States react? And of course, they reacted by um, cutting interest rates to, to basically nothing and keeping them there for an extended period of time, which, of course, inflated the housing bubble. And then the housing bubble, of course, we all know the, the popping of that, which led to the downfall of uh, Bear Stearns and Lehman Brothers and then the, the kind of global financial meltdown. And of course, that has only been put off and, and sustained by the the unbelievable opening of the floodgates of first of all the bailouts. I mean, I was just once again re refreshing my my uh, my memory on the bailouts and, and where all of this money was going. And um, and uh, again, just looking at the uh, the uh, government accountability office uh, review of Federal Reserve System data from uh, December 1st, 2007 to July 21st, 2010, and they had uh, 16.1 trillion dollars in bailouts going to Citigroup, Morgan Stanley, Merrill Lynch, Bank of America, Barclays, Bear Stearns, Goldman Sachs, Royal Bank of Scotland, uh, Deutsche Bank, UBS, JP Morgan, Credit Suisse, Lehman Brothers. I mean, all of these institutions receiving uh, trillions in the case of Citigroup, Morgan Stanley, Merrill Lynch, and Bank of America, and hundreds of billions in the case of all of the rest of those banks and many more. And just staggering, staggering sums of money being handed out um, hand over fist as a result of this global economic meltdown. And again, we have to remember that this this ultimately stems back to what was originally going to be a $700 billion bailout of the, the global banking system, which at the time still sounded like a mind-boggling figure. And, uh, and of course, we know that it, of course, quickly inflated into the trillions and trillions that were eventually handed out. But, but it, it all came down to that $700 billion bailout because at that time, they were arguing in Congress about this. And, and in fact, it was originally actually voted down in the House. And then we saw, uh, the day that it was voted down, we saw this huge, massive dip in the, in the uh, stock market. 
market. And it was basically um, a, a, a warning, both implied and very real, from the, the banksters themselves to, uh, to the Congress to say, if you don't give us what we want here, we're, uh, the, the economy will tank. And that was, that was again, not only implicit in, in the, uh, the huge dip that we saw in the, in the markets the day that the, uh, the bailout originally didn't pass, but we also had congressmen come out on the floor of Congress and say that they were actually threatened. They were, set, they were told in behind-the-scenes meetings um, with some of these banks, banking officials that if we do not pass this bailout, there will be martial law on the streets. That was an exact quote from one of the congressmen who, mm. who spilled the beans about that. So um, we do know that this, this was all part of um, an agenda that definitely kicked in um, to full gear uh, during the Lehman Brothers collapse and I really think has been continuing um, ever since. And there's a lot of people with rose-colored glasses or at the very least um, very good liars who want people to believe that somehow we've come through the worst of that and now the economy is getting better and un- unemployment is going down in the American context um, at any rate that they want you to believe that. But uh, but I, I really do think that this has all been enabled just by the opening up of the floodgates of these trillions upon trillions upon trillions of dollars. And of course now with quantitative easing round three, which is now beginning to taper and everyone's going crazy about that. Oh, wow, the economy's doing so well these days. Yeah. I really do think we're being set up for an even bigger bursting of the bubble. And unfortunately, I see, I, I, I don't like to be a chicken little running around with a head cut off um, crying wolf every few seconds. That's a, that's an interesting mix to a <laughs> fable going on there. But but I don't want to be that person who's constantly crowing about the end of the economy and the, the collapse is nigh. But I really do think a lot of things are converging on uh, the early part of 2014 for a major event. And I, I have no idea what that event might be. It could take a million different forms. But all I know is that generally in times of great economic crisis, they also love to throw in um, uh, geopolitically destabilizing events and, and warfare and all of that. So uh, again, I don't want to be that, that, that voice that's just crying wolf, but I really do think that we have to be very, um, very cautious going into this period where I think there is a, a turnaround and inflection point in the economy that's coming into, into view. And, and uh, for myself, it's, um, it's quite worrying. And unfortunately, I think I have a front row seat to what might be developing here as uh, Japan, of course, is, yeah. is very much uh, in, in some dire straits, uh, economically speaking, and is uh, probably just going to work itself even further into, into, that, uh, into that hole as they start to implement uh, higher taxes here next year as a way of trying to solve their debt crisis. And I don't think that's going to amount to a hill of beans. But at any rate, um, I, I think there's uh, problems going on all around the world. And, and uh, Ireland probably knows about that, uh, that better than a lot of other places so I'm sure I don't have to tell you or your listeners about that well it's amazing because right now what you're speaking about is exactly what's happening here in Ireland as well albeit on a slightly smaller scale but sometimes I feel like Ireland is the the testing ground for Europe it seems to be that way whether it's certain kinds of charges or taxes or economic troikas entering the country but our esteemed leader and Prime Minister Taoiseach to use the Irish word Enda Kenny gave an address to the nation, a very fine event that happens in this country very rarely last Sunday, in which he, uh, he stated that because we have exited our three-year bailout program, everything is rosy in the garden again and people can start building houses yet again, despite the fact that there are 100,000 derelict houses that didn't get finished in this country and everything's going to be fine and that the, the government solved all the problems through taxation, of course, and through austerity measures, which we all know those of us who have to live through them do not work and all they 
they do is inflict more and more pain and misery upon people. So I think we're, we're kind of, we're mirroring what's going on in the grander scheme of things. And you mentioned Japan because Japan's a very interesting country, not just economically, but we have that, uh, that great elephant in the room, which the mainstream doesn't like to talk about, and that's Fukushima. And you're on the ground there. So let's talk about Japan for a little while and how things have gone over the last few years, James, and how you think things will go. Because I personally, I think... Fukushima is just this this massive, massive incident that has been almost brushed under the carpet and people don't like to talk about it and don't like to hear about it either. So what's your take on things there? Well, I, I think you're right. I mean, I think Fukushima is is not just the elephant in the room, but really kind of this this massive thing that uh, that Japan as a as a as a as a collective as a country has has a deep state of denial about. I mean, I think there is a huge movement, anti nuclear movement here that has asserted itself um, during the last couple of years and has managed to stage massive rallies. For example, last summer, not this not 2013, but 2012, there was a series of massive massive anti nuclear rallies that were taking place every week and was growing in numbers um, anywhere from the uh, a, f- a few thousand according to police estimates to hundreds of thousands according to uh, to uh, the people who were organizing this and I think the reality was probably somewhere in between but still um, I-, I think tens of thousands of people pouring into the streets of Tokyo really really ch- um, putting some pressure on uh, on the political caste to, 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 to at least give lip service which is ultimately what they ended up doing um, the Prime Minister ended up meeting with some of the representatives or people who are calling themselves representatives of this movement and blah 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 um, and and it came to this very interesting point at which the uh, the outgoing um, uh, prime minister last year um, he he had a panel that was recommending that ultimately Japan d- scrap nuclear power altogether goes from um, 51 52 nuclear reactors down to zero over the course of the next few decades which was a pretty radical um, suggestion that most people weren't expecting to come from this uh, panel Panel that the prime minister had set up, and uh, and believe it or not, they said they were going to start adopting this. And then, of course, that government got uh, voted out, and the new Abe administration came in, and business as usual. And they're going to start back up with the uh, the reactors, and they're going to start the, them back online. And it seems that all of this has been for nothing. Although, uh, interestingly enough, the prime minister's wife has been one of the most outspoken um, critics of uh, pro nuclear advocates. So, so that's that's another interesting part to add to that mix. But yeah, so it seems that there, there's definitely a disconnect, a huge disconnect between what's happening politically and economically here versus what the people actually want. And I'm sure, again, that probably doesn't sound too unfamiliar to people in the European Union context. But um, but at any rate, so that's that's kind of where we at are, are at in terms of the political and economic situation. In terms of Fukushima itself, uh, there was obviously a huge um, uh, propaganda PR effort to make this uh, uh, as swept under the rug as it possibly could be as quickly as possible. So we saw by the end of 2011, they had declared, quote unquote, cold shutdown, which meant that they were able to keep the uh, the reactors under 100 degrees. They were basically able to keep water in there and keep it from boiling away. So that was success. And uh, from that point, it's just a question of, you know, cleaning everything up and, and going about our merry way or so they wanted us to believe. And of course, the last couple of years has shown that wrong time and time and time and time again as new problems continue to arise even as old problems continue to get worse um, just the amount of water that they're still having to pump through these reactor buildings um, as as we start I mean as we continue to learn just how badly this this situation has been handled from the very beginning not only the fact that 
three of the reactors went into complete meltdown within the, within literally within hours of the incident. And they knew about this for certain within days. And then they uh, waited months to tell the public about it, which is just one of the aspects of this that is uh, particularly egregious. But then, uh, uh, of course, the way that uh, they, they really don't even know where the reactor corium, as they're calling it, the core uh, material actually is lying. Um, they don't know how close it has come to going through containment completely or if it has actually gone through containment. They're saying it hasn't. But again, what uh, ev- pretty much everything that they've said has turned out later to be wrong or sometimes deliberately mistaken. So uh, so again, take them their word for what it is. And so again, I, I mean, the, the the process has been a complete shambles. It, they continue to uh, have record readings of radiation. In fact, an interpolated reading, it wasn't a direct reading, but an interpolated reading of a uh, vent between reactors one and two just in the last few weeks was 25 sieverts per hour, which is enough to kill a human being within about 20 minutes of exposure. Wow. Um, but no human, of course, was anywhere near that taking any direct measurements. Which So, uh, so again, there, there, the little bits and tidbits of this keep coming out from the plant from time to time. It's extremely worrying for a number of reasons but i think the number one reason of course is that so much of this radiation keeps um leaking out into the pacific and uh and in fact of course the the long-term plan is that eventually tepco will be releasing the contaminated water specifically and directly and consciously into the pacific as part of their their long-term um plan um simply because there's there's no way they can possibly contain it all but don't worry they'll decontaminate it to safe levels before they release it or so they're telling us so again many reasons to be worried it's the reason why myself and my family um don't eat anything don't basically don't eat seafood anymore um which is obviously a shame living in a culture in a country where uh, seafood is of course has been so much a part of the staple diet it hasn't been easy completely eliminating it from our diet but of course we've done so because i have a uh, seven month old son and uh and i'm not going to uh, basically jeopardize his safety for for anything um let alone for for the the purposes of feeding uh fukushima fishermen who continue to persist in catching fish off the coast of uh, the, uh, Fukushima now. So so it's, it's a pretty shambolic situation. And uh, unfortunately, uh, there's a lot of signs that uh, that things are not getting better at, at, at any um, acceptable pace. And uh, I, I guess the, uh, the other main operation that's taking place right now is the removal of the spent fuel from the spent fuel pool in Reactor 4, mm-hmm. which, again, is a, a slow, long, delicate process that could that has the potential to go very, very wrong. So uh, so that's something we're keeping a close eye on as well. So I have a, a website, FukushimaUpdate.com, where we're keeping our eye on all of these developments as they occur. And I find it very interesting as well to watch the, the US and North American reaction to Fukushima as well. A- aside from the obvious, I can, brushing things under the carpet, state of affairs, you spoke about safe levels of radiation. And let's face it, I mean, what's, what's a safe level of radiation in our food? But to see the US authorities consistently raise in response to Fukushima, raise the safe levels, using inverted commas there, very heavily, that that is allowed in the food. I mean, that to me, I mean, on one particular day, there's a safe level of radiation. Then let's throw a load of radiation into the sea, and all of a sudden we'll raise that safe level of radiation. So what was safe yesterday is now ultra safe, and what was safe tomorrow is not safe today, and it's all just this mishmash, and this, this ridiculous, I think... I think deliberately misleading and deliberately confusing um, 
mix of levels and safety and bureaucracy and ultimately it's the people who are consuming the seafood and who are being exposed to this radiation who are going to suffer and they're being lied to in my opinion I mean how can what wasn't safe yesterday be safe today for humans Yes. Well, unfortunately, there's no there's no lack of examples of that uh, in the United States, in Canada, in Japan as well. Um, there was a, a scandal that kind of briefly floated through the Japanese media that it didn't really amount to much. But uh, they uh, some documents came out, I believe, in um, perhaps it was March this year. At any rate, it was uh, it, within the last year or so. Some documents came out that definitively pro- proved that uh, some one of the scientific panels that was advising the government here had recommended the raising of the acceptable allowable radiation exposure limits for children um, in the Fukushima area to and uh, to something like 25 times what it was before that for no scientifically valid reason um, they didn't have any reason to recommend that they but they did and it was raised and um, when parents kicked up a fuss they they brought it back down to to something akin to what it was before so so it uh, a lot of this is, of course has been politically motivated from the beginning and one of the the more disturbing Disturbing aspects of that is that uh, a little-known radiation monitoring system exists in the United States specifically for these types of incidents, for some sort of nuclear crisis where they can monitor um, radiation levels across the U.S. It's called RadNet, and it just so happened to be down during that very time when Fukushima first was going and was still belching out its radioactive payload out straight into the atmosphere. And as the radioactive plumes were making their way across the Pacific, wouldn't you know it, RadNet was down during that time, so there were no readings available. Um, again, there's just so many examples of that type of thing happening that uh, that anyone who isn't incensed by these things uh, just obviously isn't paying attention. I couldn't agree more. And there was plenty to incense us over 2013. I mean, from Syria to uh, Boston bombings and beyond, what were the big issues for you, James? And what were the ones that people responded to most on the Corbett Report? I suppose... What were the most important things to your mind over 2013? Because 2013, I think, is going to be seen by many people in the future as a year when things were really ramped up in terms of the control system, when we were really prepared for what is possibly to come in the future. I think you're right about that. There has been a number of inflection points and turning points this year, and some of them, of course, have been particularly dark. I mean, uh, on all sorts of different fronts, we've seen uh, at least major steps towards the the normalization of of drone technologies. Which, again, like any technology, I know that there are uses, good uses that they, it could be put to, but unfortunately, um, we're of course more familiar with the the predators and reapers and all of the other instruments of death that uh, that that are basically video games that people are playing that that kill people on other, the other side of the planet. Um, and we've seen large steps towards the normalization of that, the hardwiring of it into geopolitical relations with what the United States is doing with their drone strikes all around the world, and, uh, and all of the subtle psychological conditioning that we've seen, including, of course, that big PR psyop campaign that Amazon recently came out with, with their yeah. ridiculous story about Amazon delivering by drone, which, of course, is not something that they're really working on. It it doesn't make any logistical sense, but it was a conveniently placed story right there in the middle of a CBS News uh, broadcast um, just the weekend before Cyber Monday, which is the uh, the new big online shopping day in the United States. So, wh- wow, how how conveniently that worked out for Amazon. But um, but uh, so that's just one of those aspects of some of the uh, I think one of the darker trends that developed this year. And I think another 
dark trend. Of course, one of the, the major stories of the year, of course, has been the Edward Snowden saga, which for all of the potential good, I guess, that could come from shining the light on the workings of the Panopticon state, or at least the exposing this idea to a large part of the public that at, at, at any other time would have dis dismissed it out of hand as conspiracy theory. I think there are dark aspects to this as well, and uh, one of them simply, again, is that conditioning effect. I mean, I see one of the potential outcomes of what's happening right now is that this steady stream of information about the various ways that we're being spied on, which of course is going to culminate in the revelation that, oh yes, the NSA is recording every phone call, they are recording every email, they are storing it right now, this isn't metadata, this isn't any of this tiptoeing around the tulips that they're doing right now. Eventually, I'm sure that this will really be hit home, and it will be made completely apparent. And at that point, if it doesn't change, then it has become the new normal and people have been normalized to it. Well, of course, everything you do online, every electronic communication is going to be watched. And, and I see that as one of the darker aspects of what's happening right now, kind of the revelation of the method and the, the, uh, the hardwiring of this into people's consciousness. So, uh, so this is something that, again, I've been talking about for years and years and years on my podcast, not only the various ways that the NSA and other agencies are watching you, but also the effect of knowing that you are being watched, um, which is uh, something called the Panama Opticon. People can look into this idea. It's, a, it's an idea for a perfect prison, but it's a philosophical idea, if, if anything, about the ways that people start to modify their behavior if they think they are being watched at all times. So that's, that's one of the, the aspects of the, the whole Snowden saga that I find disturbing. Another aspect, of course, being the ways that we're getting this, <clears throat> getting this information, getting these documents. Here we are six, seven months in, and we have apparently seen, well, some people say 1% of the documents have been released, but I, I don't think we can even say that with any certainty because anything from 8,000 to 1.7 million documents have uh, so far been claimed to have been released. So we, we have no idea what's been released, what hasn't been released, what they're sitting on, what they're not sitting on. And uh, the people who are sitting on this information, the leak keepers themselves, Glenn Greenwald and Laura Potris, who are apparently the ones who are the only ones who have the full cash from Snowden, or at least that's what they say, are now getting into a $250 million business venture with the co-founder of eBay and uh, uh, the principal of PayPal, which is a company which has been on record saying that they fully support the NSA. So again, it just, it gets crazier the more you delve into this story and I think there's a lot of dark aspects of this that are going to be playing out in the years ahead. Um, so again, a lot of dark things are happening but you mentioned a couple of points, uh, a couple of uh, stories that Although they were menacing, I think that there were, was hopeful or optimistic things that came out of them. For example, you mentioned uh, the Syria debacle that occurred in uh, late August, early September in the run-up to what looked like a certain military intervention. There was also the Boston Marathon bombing that, uh, that obviously took headlines, uh, made headlines around the world back in the early part of this year. Mm. And in both cases, I think what really emerged from that was the ways in which I think the alternative media has really started to shape the mainstream discourse to an extent that uh, that would have been unthinkable even a few years ago. And I, I point, for example, to, uh, to Google Trends. If people go there and type in false flag and then search for the past year, they will see that, uh, the, that the, the term false flag, there was an incredible spike in people searching for that term in the wake of the Boston Marathon bombing. And I find that extremely interesting because it was almost immediately, as soon as that event happened, suddenly there was people 
just all across the board, all across the spectrum, we're, we're suddenly talking about, well, was this a false flag? Could it have been a false flag? Which is almost unthinkable to me, having watched, uh, you know, seven, six or seven years ago when I started to tr- talk about 9-11 truth, the inevitable first question I would always get from everyone was, why would the government attack itself? Yeah. As if that, that entire concept was unthinkable to people. I think it has finally been made thinkable, and people now actually have a term for that concept, which is, uh, I think, considerable progress. And we saw that, for example, with the Boston Marathon bombing, although it could have had very real uh, geo geostrategic, geographical, geopolitical ramifications, it didn't really. That story kind of fizzled out, and all of the the potential implications of Chechnya and Dagestan and the war on terror and all of that seemed to fizzle away as uh, people spent more time trying to figure out who was exactly behind this and for what purpose. So I think that was a positive development. And then I think that we really saw that come to fruition in the wake of this uh, the uh, the chemical weapons attack in Gouda in August 21st uh, and the, the potential for moving into Syria militarily. Well, people stormed out into the streets. They weren't taking it. They, uh, there was incredible amount of people who were saying they didn't believe the the uh, the Obama administration on this and their their faulty intelligence that it looked exactly like the Iraq war lies and uh, people just said no and amazingly enough they didn't invade uh, it seemed almost inevitable but they didn't do it and so I, I think there are some positive trends that have started this year and I certainly hope that we can continue and expand on those successes because again I really do think the alternative media has has made that possible by laying the groundwork and the planting those seeds for people to actually understand the concept that the government lies to the people and uh, hopefully we can start to to expand on that and, and show people some of the healthy alternatives that we can set up in the wake of the the the, uh, the falling apart of the systems that we've known up to this point. That's a very interesting observation in particular well both on Syria and and Boston because it reminds me of uh, how, how I heard about the Boston bombings. I remember I was in my car and I wasn't listening to the news or whatever, as I tend not to do when I'm in the car. And I got a text message from a friend of mine basically saying, and th- this would have been a friend who would have been extremely closed off to a lot of what I would speak about with regard to, um, t- to my own kind of areas of interest in alternative news and stuff. And the text said something along the lines of, well, there's another false flag for you. And I mean, this, even though this would be a guy who would have no interest in looking into whether Boston was a false flag or not, just the fact that he used the words and was aware of them and it was the first thing that he, he decided to text to me, I just thought that was, that was that seed that has been planted somewhere in his head that hopefully will spur him to, uh, to kind of look towards things or look a little bit below the surface in future when there are these, these world incidents. The one thing that really did get to me, James, about... Um, about the Boston bombings was how readily the people of Boston, most of them seem to accept the army curfew on the streets um, and an almost pseudo martial law type situation, which I, I just thought that was kind of the, the dark side of it for me um, when I saw that and how, how people, you know, the government are protecting us now. Protecting us from what? I mean, that's the side of things that where a lot of progress needs to be made. But I do see the um, the rays of hope coming from those incidents. And it's it's very good that you've brought them up there because so many people can only see the side of fear and the doom and gloom when it comes to these situations. And uh, I, I like your perspective on it. I think it's I think it's really, really good. So over the next year, 
What do you think are going to be the big issues to watch out for? Because I always follow with, with keen interest your, not predictions, that's probably the wrong word, but, but your, your observations into the future because so many of them come to pass and I like the way you put the information together. It's, it's almost like a jigsaw puzzle. It's not that you're looking to pluck from the ether something that may or may not happen. It's not prophecy. It's quite simply you're looking at what has happened up to now and it's, it's a trend as opposed to anything else. So what, what trends do you think will continue and be the big issues over the next year or even beyond? Actually, it's funny you should bring that up because as we as we're speaking, I'm I'm working on uh, my subscriber newsletter that uh, that goes out once a week, and I'm working on the editorial. So I'm uh, it's going to be the last one of the year. So I'm working on the look back of 2013, look forward to 2014, and I did a similar thing at the beginning of the year, and I made some predictions um, in that newsletter. So I'm going back and kind of evaluating where my predictions came came true or or not. And actually, I didn't do too badly. Um, obviously, there were some things in there that didn't come to pass, but I, I, I actually specifically said in that editorial last year, I said, um, I will get the events, the specific events wrong, but the general t- trends might might uh, might hold, mm-hmm. and I think I didn't do too badly. I was talking, for example, about economic uh, collapse and things of that nature, and I said specifically that it would the economy would not collapse in 2013, and that the uh, stock markets would actually counterintuitively start to rise and continue to rise. I should say, um, so I, I did actually call that fairly accurately, and and some other things as well. But but I, I think you're right. I mean, again, I do not have the crystal ball, and I cannot predict events, but we can see trends. And we do know, unfortunately, where the powers that shouldn't be want to take us. So we can, um, I think, say with some degree of accuracy, some of the things that will be important in the new year. And uh, and so I'm thinking about this right now. What should I be writing for my 2014 predictions? I think I'm going to come up with some very, very insanely specific predictions this year and just just almost for a laugh and, you know, see what happens with them. But but um, in terms of the trends, I mean, obviously, I'm I, I may be a bit biased living here in Japan, but I. I really do think that the Asia-Pacific region in general is becoming more important geopolitically. And specifically, I mean, the Pentagon has over the past couple of years made it explicit that they are turning to the Asia-Pacific. They call it the Asia-Pacific pivot, and they are moving more of their resources into this uh, part of the chessboard. And uh, I've been talking about this a a bit in my work recently. I really do think that we're seeing the the creation of a 21st century Cold War narrative um, with China, which, I mean, if you were just to look at it on its face, is kind of laughable. I mean, uh, however, however much China is trying to build up its military and trying to be more threatening, I mean, it's still, if you actually actually compare it to the American military it's still absolutely nothing it's pea shooters versus uh, mm-hmm. atom bombs basically and and uh, it's it's all going to be smoke and mirrors. I mean, I'm not really, uh, I don't really believe that there's any fundamental rivalry between China and the U.S. and, and all of that. When Because I look at, at the system from behind the scenes and, and at the top and the people who are really controlling this, the, the oligarchs who uh, have nothing to do with the, the political positions of puppetry that, that get paraded before our eyes as if the, uh, the president of the United States is really the most powerful person in the world. So I, I think it's all smoke and mirrors. But having said that, they are, I think, trying to set up this narrative of China versus the U.S. in the new Cold War. And I think the Asia-Pacific region is going to become more important in that respect. And we're going to see more more events and things happening in this region in the coming years. I'm sure we'll start to see that more more explicitly in 2014. 
and uh, and something that I've obviously been keeping my eye on is just the the island dis- dispute between China and Japan in the East China Sea, and some of the uh, the back and forth that's been going on about that. Which again, I think is uh, is largely political and smokescreen and cover for what's really going on. I mean, what this really is about is an excuse to ic- increase military budgets and uh, do a bit of chest thumping and win elections at home. And I- I'm sure that will continue into the new year, and we'll s- we'll probably see things starting to ratchet up with um, with some around some of the tensions that have arisen recently, like with China's new air defense identification zone that they've just put in place that uh, intersects with some of uh, Japan's claimed air territory and all of this. So we'll uh, we'll see some incidents in that regard, I'm sure. And uh, and also just throwing another complete um, monkey wrench into that works is the, uh, the North Korea situation and just the bizarreness going on there right now with the, uh, the Kim Jong-un's uncle being executed and uh, who knows what's going to happen there. I mean, that's always kind of a, a, a wild card in the deck. Um, looking more broadly, I mean, again, I think economic trends and forces are going to be an important part of the coming year. And I really do think that we're I, I think we're being set up for a bubble burst in 2014. Um, I, I can't say that with any certainty and I can't say when and how that would start if it does. But I just see that the, the way that markets are reacting right now is getting more and more detached from reality. And I think they're, that can only happen to a certain extent. At a certain point when reality touches that bubble, it is going to burst and it's uh, not going to be pleasant when it does so. So that's something I've definitely got my eye on for the coming year. And, um, and actually, I was just talking to James Evan Pilato the, the, uh, at MediaMonarchy.com. I co-host a weekly video series with him, New World Next Week, and we were just talking about 2014, and he came up with a trend for the new year that was positive, so I'll, I'll steal that one because I, I like that idea. Yeah, he was talking about the idea of do-it-yourself as becoming more and more of a trend, more things, something that people are, are, are consciously starting to incorporate into their lives, and uh, he said that that um, will be expanding in, the, in 2014, and I certainly hope that's true. Um, because again, I think part of the power of this this internet revolution that's taking place, if it really is so, is that people can collaborate and and share information freely and instantly online, which can create the kind of communities of knowledge and experience and expertise where we can share information directly. We we can bypass the systems that have held us in place for so long in so many different respects, economically, um, uh, in terms of uh, food production, in terms of so many different aspects of our lives. We can start to bypass the, the, uh, the institutional grid that's been created around us. So I certainly hope that people will be taking more advantage of this and expanding into the new year with this idea that we can do it, if not Ourself, ourselves, we can collaborate actively and and share information and form communities that will maintain and and cohere throughout whatever turmoil or crap that the powers that shouldn't be want to throw at us in the new year. So I hope that's a positive trend that we'll be developing into 2014. I think there is plenty of crap they are going to throw at us. But overall, long term, are you broadly speaking positive, negative or what way do you think things are? I mean, what's what's your gut feeling as opposed to looking at any of the specifics? What is your gut feeling for this group that we call humanity on this planet at the moment? Well, I guess this is the uh, half-full, half-empty question, optimistic, pessimistic, and my answer is that if I wasn't optimistic, if I didn't have hope that there was a chance that we could change this, that we could uh, change things around and, and, and make for uh, an actually truly better world for, for future generations, then I wouldn't be here talking to you right now on a Friday night. I would be uh, probably inebriating myself and uh, watching sports or something like that, um, yeah. just to pass the time until I die, uh, curled up in a fetal position in the corner. But I'm 
not doing that. I am using um, the, the chance that I have at this point in time to try to spread this awareness and this information because I do believe that humanity can and will thrive into the future and that we will survive, that we will rid ourselves of this kleptocratic, pathocratic, psychopathic overclass that has uh, kept us down for, for generations untold. And I really do think that we can turn it around and, um, and I'm, not, I'm under no uh, delusions that that's going to be an easy process or an inevitable one certainly we could lose and uh, humanity really could be orwell's nightmare vision of a boot stamping on the face of humanity for the rest of eternity but uh, but as long as we have a chance to make that not become a reality i'm going to be doing everything that i possibly can to make that uh, uh, to change that and to make it into something good and better and uh, and to hopefully throw off this this oppressive class that has been uh, really ruling over us for far too long well, that's really what I like to hear. And I think there's one little thing that the powers that shouldn't be often overlook, and that's something called the human spirit. And that doesn't go away. And no matter how many boots are stamping on humanity in gener- general, I think that spirit is always there. And I think that's, that's the big fear for a lot of them in power, because that's not going to go away, in my opinion. I think that's why, well, I suppose the forces of good versus evil will ult- ultimately triumph, in my opinion. Before we let you go, James, you mentioned very briefly um, some insanely accurate predictions. Can you give us one of them? <laughs> not not insanely accurate, insanely specific. Um, <laughs> well, one of them that I'm going to, to probably put in there is I'm going to predict um, North Korea's collapse this year. Wow. Um, why not? That's uh, in the coming year, sometime, North Korea will collapse. And I think if, I mean, l- let's just use that as a thought experiment. If that happened, what would be the ramifications of that? Because obviously you'd have millions upon millions of refugees who'd probably be trying to flood over into China, and China would definitely not want that. Um, I think they're economically unstable enough as it is. Um, and yet, of course, they wouldn't want the U.S. or, or U.S.-affiliated um, allies to come in there to try to stabilize the situation because, obviously, then they'd be right at China's doorstep. And I think China would not allow for that. So what what would be the resolution to that? I'm, I'm going to try to puzzle through that. So that's, I mean, those are the types of thought experiments that, again, even if they do not come true, they are interesting and they can tell us a lot about the world we're living in. Give us the websites because I know there will be many people who'd like to check out more. Yes. Well, I mean, the main website is CorbettReport.com and I'm affiliated with a lot of other websites, uh, the International Forecaster, Boiling Frogs Post, uh, Global Research. I have FukushimaUpdate.com. I have a lot of different people that I interview and partners with and and that type of thing. But basically, CorbettReport.com is the one-stop shop. People can find all of my information there, 100% freely available to download, download thousands and thousands of hours of media in the archives there. And I, I hope that people will use it as an information resource because that's what it's been built up uh, to be. And for those who missed it, people can find that link on the Alchemy Radio website. Before you go, James, I just a little suggestion for you. I think um, your, your mixed metaphors and your chicken little analogy was fantastic. I think you should maybe think of writing a children's book. There's something in there somewhere. I think, fair play. <laughs> I've never been told I should write a children's book before, but that's intriguing enough a suggestion that I might actually contemplate it. So thank you for that. Well, no problem, James. It's been fantastic having you on Alchemy Radio. Um, if you're amenable to it, we'd certainly love to have you back on a couple more times in 2014. I think uh, you've a refreshing take on the global situation and what's going on in the world. And it's, it's very articulately put, and we certainly appreciate it here. So thank you very much for your time and have a great 2014 
Well, I appreciate you having me on, and I certainly um, wish all the best for you and all the audience out there. Again, it's not all gloom and doom, and uh, sometimes I think we just all need to unplug and spend time with our families and remember what it is that we're fighting for in the first place. So that's what I'm going to be doing for the next couple of weeks. So uh, so to everyone out there across the planet that is, that's doing the same thing, um, I salute you and what, you, what all you guys are out there are doing to, to help spread this word. So uh, all the best to you and yours during this holiday season. I have the power. You have the power. We have the power. James Corbett, thank you for joining me on Alchemy Radio today. Alchemy Radio. enjoyed this week's episode of alchemy radio remember we rely on donations to keep the show in its current free and advertising free format and are very very grateful for any help that you can offer we put no fixed costs on your donations and every little bit helps 
So anything that you can donate will go a long way towards keeping us afloat. Our donate button is on the website. And as I keep repeating, your support and assistance is hugely appreciated. Thank you to everybody who supported over the last number of weeks and indeed months. It's gone a long, long way towards helping. Our next guest is Dave Asprey from the BulletproofExecutive.com website. So check that out in advance of our interview. It promises to be another intriguing show. Until then, I have the power, you have the power, we have the power. Alchemy Radio. Alchemy Radio. Analyze. Alchemy Radio. Conceive. Alchemy Radio. Believe. Are you tuned in? Are you tuned in? Are you tuned in? Are you tuned in? Are you tuned in?